0: Welcome to Wisdom Trek with Gramps. I am Guthrie Chamberlain and we are on day 2274 of our Trek. The purpose of Wisdom Trek is to create a legacy of wisdom, to seek out discernment and insights, and to boldly grow where few have chosen to grow before. We are continuing the messages I delivered at Putnam Congregational Church over the past couple of years. This is week 20 of a 25-week message series covering the book of Hebrews. This message is titled, Triumphs and Tragedies of the Faithful. I pray that it'll be a conduit of learning and encouragement for you. And today we continue our series through the book of Hebrews in the New Testament. The last week, we explored faithful walks that were worth following. And our focus was on the patriarchs of Israel. That is Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, who was later named Israel, and then his son Joseph. This week, we continue this theme and we explore the triumphs and the tragedies of the faithful. In our passage today is Hebrews chapter 11, verses 23 through 40. It's on page 1876 of your Pew Bible. As I mentioned in the last couple of weeks, this entire chapter is titled, Faith in Action. So follow along as I start with verse 23. By faith, Moses' parents hid him for three months. After he was born because they saw that he was no ordinary child, and they were not afraid of the king's edict. By faith, Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be known as the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He chose to be mistreated along with the people of God, rather than to enjoy a fleeting pleasures of sin. He regarded disgrace for the sake of Christ as of greater value than the treasuries of Egypt, because he was looking ahead to his reward. By faith, he left Egypt, not fearing the Lord's, the king's anger. He persevered when he saw him who is invisible. By faith, he kept the Passover and the application of the blood so that the destroyer of the firstborn would not touch the firstborn of Israel. By faith, the people passed through the Red Sea as on dry ground. But when the Egyptians tried to do so, they were drowned. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell after the army had marched, marched around them for seven days. By faith, the prostitute Rahab, because she welcomed the spies, was not killed with those who were disobedient. And what more shall I say? I do not have time to tell about Gideon, Barak, Samson, and Jephthah, uh, about David and Samuel and the prophets, who through the faith conquered kingdoms, administered justice, gained what was promised, who shut the mouths of lions, quenched the fury of the flames, and escaped the edge of the sword. Whose weaknesses was turned to strength and who became powerful in battle and routed foreign armies. Women received their dead back, raised to life again. There were others who were tortured, refused to be released so that they might gain an even better resurrection. Some faced jeers and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were put to death by stoning. They were sawn in two. They were killed by the sword. They went around in sheepskins and goatskins, destitute, persecuted, and mistreated. The world was not worthy of them. They wandered in the deserts and the mountains, living in caves and holes in the ground. These were all commended for their faith, yet none of them received what was been promised, since God had planned something better for us, so that only together with us would they be made perfect." Before we jump back into Hebrews chapter 11, we've been doing a lot of studying in this chapter. It's time for a quiz. It's a true and false quiz, and there are six questions in it. So either write them down or just think in your mind what your answers would be to each of these statements. First one is, Christians never wrestle with their doubts, true or false. The second one is, Christians never stumble into sin, true or False. The third, Christians are free from imperfection. True or false? Fourth, Christians always are shielded from hardship, suffering, and tragedy. True or false? Number five, Christians take hold of God's promises without wavering in hope. True or false? And six, Christians never suffer failure or defeat in their faith walks. True or false? Okay, time to grade our quiz. I think it will be really easy. If you answered true to any of these statements, you better rethink your answers. Every one of these statements is false. We as Christians do suffer from all of these. However, some of these similar er- erroneous ideas about the Christian life plague many believers even today. These false expectations lead to disappointment in other believers, disappointments in ourselves, and disappointment with God. The truth is the authentic life of faith is a constant battle against temptation. I face it, you face it, everyone faces it. It's marked by stumbling and falling, getting back again, but then we're dirtied and bruised. True believers are bothered by lingering doubts and jolted by fits of unbelief. They fail their friends, their families, and their fellow believers. They back down when we should stand strong. We lose hope when we should look to the Lord in confidence. The reality of the Christian life becomes even more sobering when we observe those trials and tribulations faced by mature believers characterized by their faithfulness. Those who are standing strong for the Lord still suffer and go through these things. Even the godliest of believers can and do experience tragedies. They deal with financial disasters such as we have. They endure accidents and injuries such as we have. They suffer their sicknesses and disease. They become victims of violent crimes. They walk through the dark valleys of despair because there is no force field to protect the Christians from the effects of this fallen world and the suffering of our own mortality. Now, in the remainder of Hebrews 11, we see a sharp contract between the triumphs enjoyed by the people of faith and the tragedies endured by the people of faith. Some have experienced tremendous victories in their life and their walk of faith, such as Moses, Joshua, Gideon, and David, but these same people experienced constant tragedies in their lives also. This long list of believers throughout history are rightly commended for their faith, but they did not receive all that was promised, as verse 39 will see. Yet they all of them endured both tragedy and triumph, deliverance and affliction as they waited for the day in the future when all men and women of faith would finally be made perfect, verse 40. And it reminded me of 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 12, where an apostle Paul wrote to the Corinthian church. He says, now we see things imperfectly, like puzzling reflections in a mirror, but then we'll see everything in a perfect clarity. All that I know is partial and incomplete, but then I will know everything completely, just as God knows me completely. We look through, I think the King James Version says, through a a glass darkly. We see things from a fuzzy image, because we haven't reached perfection yet. Last week and the week before, we studied about those who are considered faith-filled Hall of Famers. We looked at the life of Abel two weeks ago, and Enoch and Noah. And then last week, we looked at Sarah in Abraham and their descendants this procession of faith the author of hebrews devoted plenty of space to fill in the details of patriarch of Abraham and the patriarchs and repeatedly we see that things were accomplished by faith now the author switches the palette and transitions to a form of from the era of patriarchs into the era of the law Moses and the law the original jewish readers of the book of hebrews probably would, have, would not have had a hard time accepting that, yeah, these patriarchs that we see here live by faith. Going back to verse 1 of Hebrews chapter 11, faith shows the reality of what we hoped for. The, it is the evidence of things that we cannot see. So the patriarchs lived before the law, though, and before the conquest of the land of the promised land that God had promised Abraham. They had not received all the promises in full. They saw a shadow, as we talked about last week. But what about Moses? Did he live a life of faith in the unseen? Now, the author notes that Moses' life began with an act of faith. In verse 23, when the paranoia of Pharaoh prompted an unprovoked slaughter of the male Hebrew infants as a gruesome way of population control in Exodus 1, Moses' parents defied the king's edict. They were not afraid to. And by faith, they were willing to face the consequences that might occur because of that. They chose to obey God rather than a man who thought he was a God. By hiding the baby from Pharaoh, the Pharaoh's forces, and floating him down the Nile River, they trusted God alone to care for their child. Now, one act of faith set off a series of other acts of faith that eventually led to the rescue of the people of Israel, from the land of Egypt, and ordering a nation under the law on into the promised land. But it all began by faith. In verses 24 through 28, the author demonstrates that the lawgiver Moses was a man whose life was epitomized by faith, just like the patriarchs of old that we looked at last week, and just like his parents, Moses' parents, from a humble beginning to his triumphal victory where at the Exodus. Moses was a man that accomplished everything by faith. The faithfulness of Moses is illustrated by three decisions he had to make. And if you look at your bulletin insert on the side, it says triumphs and tragedies of the faithful. I just read that first sentence there, so let's reread that. Moses was a man who accomplished everything by faith. The faithfulness of Moses illustrated by three critical decisions that he made. That first decision that Moses made was Moses refused to go with the flow of a sinful society in verses 24 through 26. Remember the context of Moses' call. He had been plucked from the Nile River as an infant raised by Pharaoh's daughter. He was raised as a prince of Egypt. He was raised in the best of what, everything Egypt had to offer. Now commentator F.B. Meyer describes Moses' place in the Egyptian society this way. It says, If he rode forth in the streets, he would be in princely garb, amid the cries of, Bow the knee! If he floated down the Nile, it would have been in a golden barge with the strains of voluptuous music playing. If he wished for anything, the almost unlimited wealth and treasuries of Egypt were within his grasp. So picture Moses as a Hebrew in his heart but decked out in all the trimmings of a royal priest of Egypt, or prince of Egypt. He no doubt wrestled with the tensions between masquerading as an Egyptian pre- prince and the life that he really was that of embracing his true identity as a Hebrew within Egypt, a member of the people of God. By simply making the startling decision. To leave that behind, he became an outcast so he could become part of God's family. So he turned his back on Egypt and all the material wealth and the physical pleasures to align himself with the class of slaves there in Egypt, verses 24 and 25. Having been raised in the luxury of the Egyptian royalty, Moses would have known very little about the plight of the Hebrews other than observing them from afar the attitude of faith was manifested in his act of will. He chose to endure ill treatment and by identifying with God's people. He considered God's heavenly reward greater than all the riches of Egypt. But these were no youthful whims or wave of emotion that hit him. Moses was 40 years old when he decided to leave his role as a prince of Egypt he decided to break ranks and join the Hebrews at that point. These were acts of faithfulness inspired by a deep trust in the character and the promises of God. The second critical decision that Moses made was by faith. Moses left the familiar to venture into the foreign. Moses knew Egypt better than any other place. He had been raised there for 40 years in the palaces of Pharaoh as a prince of Egypt. He knew Egypt's buildings, their alleys, their obelisks, their temples. He knew all the sights and the sounds and the smells. They were home to him. That's what he grew up in. He was trained by the best. He was, as John read in the passage today, an eloquent speaker. Yet, by virtue of his actions, he chose to leave Egypt. And it is likely either a reference to when he killed the Egyptian when he saw him brutalizing Hebrews, or his exodus from Egypt in Exodus 12. But Moses was able to survive this traumatic transition from the familiar to the foreign. When he left the land of Egypt the first time, he went to the, the desert of Midian and became a shepherd, where he herded sheep for 40 years after that, from royalty in the palace, everything he wanted to a lowly shepherd in the desert of Midian, herding stinky sheep. Because he had put his focus on the one true God, who was unseen to him at that point. Instead of backing down at the thoughts of Pharaoh's wrath, he stood firm, trusting God. In Moses' third critical decision is by faith, Moses was willing to swallow his own pride to do that which was unusual in verse 28. Now, on the eve of the exodus, after Moses had returned from Midian and approached Pharaoh, and they experienced those plagues, on the eve of this exodus from slavery in Egypt, after a series of 10 plagues that plagued the nation of of Egypt, God commanded Moses and the Israelites to do something that was quite unusual. They were to kill an unblemished sheep or goat and apply the blood on the doorpost and the lentil over the houses. Then they would cook that meat and eat it in haste. This was their Passover observance, as God was to go through the land of Egypt that night and kill the firstborn of every house in Egypt that didn't have the sign of the blood on their door. And just as a side note, through other parts of scriptures and other studies, we know that some of the Egyptians chose to believe in that one true God. And they were able to escape Egypt with the Israelites. I can imagine that, that night when that death angel went through to kill the firstborn in every Egypt house that didn't have that sign above the door. And I can imagine when Moses said, to put blood on the doorposts and the lentils and eat in haste. Some of them looked him cross-eyed maybe just playing cross at Moses and says, you want us to do what with this blood? I don't understand Moses. Yet Moses obeyed this, what some might think is an uncouth command. The judgment of God came and it passed over all those who complied with his command. But every firstborn in Egypt was killed by this final plague in Egypt. Moses' obedience to seemingly absurd but it directly led to Pharaoh's release of the Israelites from this land of Goshen. How like God it is with God to test our faith by demanding something from our lives that might seem somewhat unusual, maybe even ridiculous, or we don't understand it. Whether it's building an ark when there was not a cloud in the sky, as Noah did, or the promise of having a child when it was 190 years old. That took faith in God that he would fulfill his promise. Even the painting of the blood on the doorpost and the lentil was quite unusual. Something that they were not familiar with. But God seemed to pair this faith with that which was unusual had, God, had Moses failed to respond to this in faith, this de- these decisions that he made, none of these proce- pro- procession of faith would follow. We move on to verses 29 through 31. Moses' faith in faithfulness led to the signs and the wonders and miracles that God wrought through the ministry of deliverance. Moses' personal decision became the powerful triumph of epic miracles, both for his generations and all the generations to follow. The first of these miracles involved an unprecedented miracle of Israel crossing through the Red Sea as, an, as if it was dry land. Yes, it was a miraculous action of the mighty God who split the waters of the Red Sea and allowed the people of Israel to pass through, as we're told in Exodus 14. But what faith it must have taken for those Israelites to see this water piled up on each side and all of a sudden this path wide path that they were to cross through on. A moment ago, it was a, a, a sea there. These men and women and children to trudge from shore to shore with those walls of water on either side. We see that it was faith that was necessary to trust God amid even one of the most profound miracles in all the Bible. When the faithless Egyptians attempted the same crossing and the same conditions, the walls of water gave out came down on top of them, and they drowned in the sea. Now, the second miracle involved the Battle of Jericho. Now, we had plenty of miracles between the Red Sea crossing through the wilderness, 40 years in the wilderness, before we reach this next one. It's mentioned in Hebrews 11. But the second miracle mentioned in Hebrews 11 is the Battle of Jericho. Forty years after that Red Sea miracle, the Israelites finally crossed over the Jordan, and it was, again, the Jordan parted and they went across as on dry ground. They went into the promised land. This time it was Joshua in Moses' place that was the leader of Israel. However, the land that was west of the Jordan that had been promised to God's people back to Abraham, they had to liberate this nation that had been turned to the land of Canaan because those occupants there turned it into a den of wickedness. The day quickly came when they were standing before this heavily fortified city of Jericho with a decision to make. And God said, march around the city one time on the first six days. And on the seventh day, march around that city seven times. And then blow your trumpets and shout. Does that seem like a battle plan that would work? Following God's ludicrous instructions for toppling the city, which was nothing they've heard of before in Joshua chapter 6, verses 1 through 5, they had that choice. Or they could head back across the Jordan again into the wilderness, faced with the impossible by faith. The Israelites embraced the commandments of God and conquered the city God's way. There was no doubt that God was victor in that battle. Now finally, the author of Hebrews splashes on the canvas of faith with all these patriarchs who we think are faith-filled men and women of God. He brings up an unexpected name, a figure mentioned here. It was the harlot named Rahab. It featured in Joshua chapter 2 and Joshua chapter 6 as one person in Jericho who came to the assistance of the Hebrew spies and agreed with them, and she appears Next, in the genealogy of Jesus in Matthew chapter 1, verse 5. She was a heroine here in our faith chapter of Hebrews 11. The fact that she became an ancestor of David, who was an ancestor of Jesus Christ, indicates that when she miraculously delivered from God's judgment, she converted her faith to that one true God of Israel, And that faith preserved her life, as she wisely chose to side with the people of God. But that's not all that the author of Hebrews mentions. He mentions several others. Though the author could have gone in an extensive description of each of these, this extended narrative of legacy makers in the Old Testament, he finished the rest of his montage with faith giants, with just thumbnail sketches. He mentions just a sampling of those who would conjure up vivid images in these Jewish readers of Hebrews in that first century. Judges such as Gideon and Barak, Samson and Jephthah. He mentions King David and Samuel and the line of prophets that followed them. If we continued this author's procession of faith, we could add New Testament heroes of faith to the lists. What about Jesus' parents, earthly parents, Mary and Joseph? What faith it took for them to bring a Christ child into the world? Or Christ's inner circle, Peter, James, and John, out of the 12 disciples, those were the closest three. Or the apostle Paul, who went throughout all the countries preaching to the Gentiles. We could advance in church history to include Parley Parley of Smyrna, Justin Martyr, Athanasius of Alexandria We can mention those earlier attempts of the reform in the medieval heroes like Peter Waldo or John Wycliffe or John Huss? We could, who could forget those who contributed to the Great Reformation like Lutherans Wigley and Edwards and Wesley, or more contemporaries like Jim Eliot or Corey Timboom or Mother Teresa? If the author of Hebrews could have named all those who deserved recognition? for their lives of faith, can you imagine the lineup of champions that we would have today? The question we ask ourselves is, my faith walk, would it allow me to be part of this lineup or procession of those who are faithful? So after presenting the parade of faithful people, the author presents a colorful tabloid of events illustrating incredible feats of faith in verses 33 through 38. However, the faith medley transitions in the middle in verse 35 from a major chord to a minor key, from triumph of the faithful to the tragedies of the faithful. Now, the first category is awe-inspiring. It's a mountain range jutting triumphantly toward the sky. The second category is like a steep slide into the darkest valleys of seeming defeat. I'll use a $10 word here. Let's juxtapose these two different outcomes. That I means comparing these two of the faithful, and see how starkly they compare. And I put this in your bulletin insert. Let's first go through the triumphs of the faithful. They're listed in this passage. They conquered kingdoms. They performed acts of righteousness. They, obtained promises. They shut the mouths of lions. They quenched the power of fire. They escaped the edge of the sword. From weakness, they were made strong. They became mighty in war. They put foreign armies to flight. They received their dead back by resurrection. But then some of these same people and other faithful servants of God had tragedies in their life. They were tortured They endured mockings and scourgings. They experienced chains and imprisonment. They were stoned and sawn in two. They were tempted. They were put to death by the sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins. They were destitute, afflicted, and ill-treated. They wandered in deserts and mountains and caves and holes in the ground. Yes, we as faithful believers will have triumphs, but we'll also have tragedies in our lives. And we move on to verses 39 and 40. Just as the sun shines on the just and the unjust, and the rain falls on the wicked and the righteous, is told in Matthew chapter 5, verse 45, we do see that storms of tragedy sweep over the faithful and the faithless alike. Because we live in a fallen world, everyone experiences a mixture of both triumphs and tragedies. However, neither the astonishing victories nor the demoralizing defeats we might have in our life represents the end of our story. Remember, faith isn't about what we see, what we feel, what we experience, or what we accomplish in this life. Let's go back to verse 1 of Hebrews 11. Faith shows the reality of what we hope for. It is the evidence of the things that we cannot see. That's why these closing verses of Hebrews 11 And this passage puts everything in perspective. The author clears up a a varied experience as a triumph and tragedy. The panoramic portrait of people, these scenes of faith, is finished. Above the completed work of art, right here, it's down the middle of this work of art, are the verses 39 and 40. All these people earned a good reputation because of their faith, yet none of them received all that God had promised, For God had something better in mind for us so that they would not reach perfection without us. Those who have gone before us, that's bringing us along in this faith walk. You see, we are part of God's faith walk. We are here to bring God's kingdom into a world. And when Christ returns that second time to set up his kingdom, that he's prepared this new global Eden where he'll remake the entire earth into a garden of Eden. And heaven and earth will combine and we'll live with them with all eternity is what we're looking forward to. We are part of preparing this kingdom here on earth today. We are part of this faith walk. We see by the author of Hebrews that approval was granted to these men and women of faith, not because of their personal merit, their pedigrees, or their perfection, but because of their faith. Amid triumph and tragedy, they longed for what was unseen, to catch a glimpse of the future. And with eyes of faith, they saw that the Lord Jesus Christ was the one who was here for pressing on, who was superior for pressing on. They lived by faith. They looked into the distant future and the promise of perfection that would finally be fulfilled as we do. Those ancient saints in this portrait of faith represent our spiritual ancestry. But they're not merely relics of the past that we see and say, well, that's nice. They are ever-living presence in our lives because of their faith traces down to our faith. They motivate us to do what they did to look to the future by faith and to live faithful lives here in the present. My question today for us is, are we living such lives of faith that those who come behind us find us faithful and say, because of their faith walk, I will remain faithful just as we follow those who have gone before us? To aid us in this journey, let's step back just a moment and take another look at the central figure of the second half of Hebrews 11, which was Moses, and recall that he made three radical decisions that affected not only the course of his life, but also the course of people of history throughout Israel and on down into the church age. His journey of faith was not without obstacles. He had plenty of obstacles. Nobody's life of faith is constant victory, not on this side of Christ's kingdom at least. However, until then, let's imitate the three decisions that Moses made the difference in his life. And if you look at the other side of your bulletin insert today, nobody's life of faith will be a life of constant victory, not on this side of Christ's kingdom. So let's replace what we saw, the decisions that Moses made And let's make those decisions ourselves. The first one is we must refuse to go on with the flow of a sinful society. Now, anyone who encounters the deteriorating moral values of the world today will have to decide on two paths. Do we go back to Egypt and live the life that we once lived? Or do we head toward the Promised Land? the eternity that we'll have with Jesus Christ. We face these decisions not once or twice in our lives, but on a daily basis over and over and over again. Like Moses, we need to lift our eyes upon Jesus to look full into his wonderful face and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Like Moses... We need to put away the pleasures of our body, the immediate pleasures of the body, the heart and the mind toward the internal pro- eternal promises of God. So ask ourselves, have we drifted from the uh, current events with the culture around us instead of standing firm on God's word? Do we take this opportunity to reverse the drift and go against the flow? It reminds me of the opening credits to the TV series, The Chosen. And it shows these fish through this current, not literal fish, but graphic images of them. It shows them, all; most of them going this way. And then there's a few going this way that are in aqua. These are in black. These are in aqua. And then every once in a while, you'll see one of these black ones turn and turn to aqua and go the opposite direction. And that's what we are to do, is to not go with the flow of society, but walk with the chosen. Second, by faith, we must live the familiar, or leave the familiar, to venture into that which is foreign. For Moses is involved not only a physical transition from Egypt to Midian, from being a prince of Egypt to a lowly shepherd, then back into Goshen to release God's people. It also involved a spiritual journey from a false religion of Egypt to a true faith in the God of Israel. the Israelites. It meant abandoning his wealth and embracing a life of a vagabond, it meant turning his back on the well-known opening and opening himself up to which was completely unknown to him. Moses' experiences teaches us that a life of faith is often a pilgrimage in this life, a walking by faith, not necessarily by sight. For the things that we know and love, God may have us experience new circumstances, people and places that are unfamiliar. And the third decision that we should apply to ourselves is by faith, we must swallow our pride and be willing to do that which is unusual. God doesn't always live by our neat and tidy pros and cons approach to our decision making. He doesn't limit his leading of us to the next logical step in our lives, our predictable lives. They're so comfortable for us. Sometimes a life of faith appears more like wandering adventure through the Alice in Wonderland than the neat game of chess. God may draw us go to, to have us go down a road that is unusual and somewhat unexpected. If you would have asked me three years ago that I'd be speaking here full-time at Putnam now, I would not have even imagined it. And yet, over the last two and a half years, God has allowed me to do so. And I just pray it's been as much of a blessing to you as it has been to me. God may be asking you to do something that neither you nor anyone else would expect. You may need to decide to swallow your pride, to step out in faith, even to do that which is unusual or not expected. The most important thing that we have to do, though, is to impact the lives of those that God leads into our lives, whether we... No matter what we do for an occupation or if we're retired, whoever God leads into our lives, we are to impact them through our faith walk. Just like those who have gone before us impact our lives because of their faith walk, the walk of faith, we need to have in a manner that others will follow us. Don't underestimate your impact on others that follow you, whether it's your kids, your grandkids, your nieces, your nephews, your great nieces, your great nephews, Your work associates, your life impacts them, and it can impact all of eternity. May our lives be summed up in those last two verses of this chapter. All these people, including us, earned a good reputation because of their faith, yet none of them received all that God has promised. We are still looking forward to that second coming of Christ when he establishes us, his kingdom here on earth, for God had something better in mind for us, so that they would not reach perfection without us. When Christ returns, we'll reach that perfect state. But until then, it is our responsibility to walk faithfully with him, to have others follow us in our faith walk. Now next week, we'll extend our focus on the long-term life of faith, which will require endurance and discipline, something that we all probably need. So please read Hebrews chapter twelve verses one through thirteen in preparation for next week's message. Let us pray. Father, we do thank you. We thank you for your blessings. We thank you for everything you allow into our lives, whether we from our limited human perspectives view it as triumphs or tragedies. We know that you are working through them all, Father, shaping our faith walk, that we may remain faithful. And those that come behind us, find us faithful, follow. We just pray, Father, that in all the things that we do, we might walk faithfully with you. We pray this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. I pray that this message was a blessing and a time of learning from God's word. Thank you so much for allowing me to be your guide, your mentor, but most importantly, I am your friend. As I serve you through the Wisdom Trek podcast and journal each day See you next time for more wisdom from God's word.